Hello and welcome back to the IC interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and joining me today is Elsa Craig of the International Biotechnology Trust. Elsa has been working as an investment manager on the fund since 2008, but recently took the reins as joint lead manager following the announcement of Dr. Carl Harold Janssen's departure. The trust is one of the more defensive names in the biotech space, but its net assets have modestly outperformed its benchmark, the NASDAQ Biotechnology Index, over the past five years, in which time the share price has risen by over 90%. In this interview, Elsa shares what types of companies she looks to invest in, where she sees the value in the biotech industry currently, and how the development of coronavirus treatments has impacted holdings in the trust. Elsa, thank you for joining me. Just to start off with, can you... Can you talk me through what a biotechnology company is and um, what types of companies you look to own? Yes, so biotech can be classified in two different ways. First of all, the industry way, where traditionally biotech was the innovative um, production of proteins as um, to use for therapies instead of the small white tablets or small molecule therapies, which were traditionally made by pharma companies. However, the capital markets definition has morphed into biotech being the innovative as well, but the higher growth part of the healthcare industry. So where the innovation is, um, the sort of companies that get picked up by big pharma um, for M&A, if you like. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned M&A. How, um, how important is M&A in the biotech space? Uh, it's, it's basically part of the business model. Um, it's an ongoing feature of the sector. So as you can imagine, small, nimble companies um, are born out of universities with VC funding, for example, and then they kind of morph and develop and grow. Um, and those are where the ideas are, where the future is. And then you're, um, coupled with that, you have big pharma names, who, which are the sort of big muscle manufacturing uh, companies with lots and lots of cash. Um, and they need and need to source growth. So they go out hunting in, in the sort of smaller biotech innovative side of the industry, and they tend to acquire those companies for a premium. Um, so that, that's been an ongoing feature of the industry for the last 20 years, and we would consider that as a feature going forward as well. And I guess one big feature or story over the last year has been the pandemic, um, and it's really put biotech and big pharma companies into the spotlight a number of the companies that you own have been at the forefront of fighting the pandemic um, how has the pandemic affected their investment case and and where are we at now yeah so there's been sort of various different approaches and taken by the industry in order to address the pandemic so when it first emerged it was about identifying what the disease was and what was causing it um, and that was um, done by sequencing uh, the genome of the virus um, and then obviously testing was a big part of how to manage a pandemic and finding out who's infectious. And then in terms of treatments and vaccines, it's much more the space that we look at in, within the biotech industry. Um, we've seen a very, very successful program on the vaccine front, and, and we're all aware of that. And just talking you know, a reference to the M&A, um, it is perfect example, textbook example of where you've got nimble, small companies and um, technologies such as BioNTech partnering up with Pfizer with the marketing muscle on the other side. On the treatment side, it's been less successful. And, and I think people would have predicted the other way around. They would have predicted maybe treatments would emerge more quickly and vaccines might come at a later date. 
um, but the opposite has been true. Um, however, we have had a couple of companies that have had successes on the um, antiviral side of things. So Regeneron and Gilead, uh, both names that are in our top 10, have both had um, successes on that front. So Gilead's had Desivere approved. I think the problem set faced by treatments is convenience. These these products that Gilead Remdesivir, for example, has to be administered in the hospital. It's quite cumbersome. Um, and also once patients are in hospital, they tend to be quite sick already. And ideally what we would have is mass testing. And as soon as you get a positive result, you could have an antiviral there and then. That would be great. So I think there needs to be some huge improvements on the convenience side of things um, before we can really nip this thing in the bud. And Gilead and Regeneron are quite big companies. How big an effect has the pandemic had on their overall business? Yeah, I think, I mean, we can talk broadly about how the pandemic's um, had an effect on all of our companies that we've invested in. Um, but just parking that, uh, yes, we've had a couple of these, these two names are involved in the fight against um, COVID-19, but it, they're not to, it's not to an extent that it's really gonna move the needle and change our view on the investment case. It's very much sort of on the margin. Gilead, for example, has a very robust and stable HIV franchise. Um, and uh, for them to grow and look to the future, they're moving into oncology. They've made a big acquisition of a portfolio company holding a vase called Immunomedics an oncology company for triple negative breast cancer. So those are the sort of key factors that we follow on, on Gilead, not so much the Remdesivir story. Um, and then equally with Regeneron, again, its legacy um, franchise is in ophthalmology, but they're morphing and moving into oncology as well and have an extensive pipeline across many disease areas. So it's you'll see these names in the press when it comes to the to the pandemic but that's really not what's gonna move the needle and why we invest in them primarily yeah that's interesting and just on Regeneron how how far has its work during the pandemic marked an inflection point for the group's antibody antibody therapies more broadly I think again just as sort of on a high level basis it's you know it's really encouraging seeing um, efficacy from the antibody cocktails and the likes of Regeneron absolutely um, great to see but again what we really want to see is a sort of more convenient and cheap drugs you know oral tablets nasal sprays something that's super convenient that can be um, manufactured fast and quickly and, and distributed around the world so although they're effective there needs to be sort of an improvement on innovation I think on that side of things. And just dialing back a bit I think it's fair to say that the biotech sector hasn't always had the best reputation um, but reputations have seem to have improved a lot over the last year, especially with all the great work that these companies have done. Can you talk a, talk a bit about what your feeling is about sentiment towards the industry more broadly at the moment and um, how it's improving? Yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating area, this. Um, uh, sitting on my side of the table, when you, it, pharma traditionally had a worse reputation than tobacco companies, which felt desperately unfair when um, they're reinvesting a huge proportion of their profits back into R&D. And you can see the efficiency and the innovation and how, how you know, um, fundamentally strong this sector has become as a result of that really quite amazing investment. 
um, because of the response to the to the pandemic. So it, it did seem desperately unfair to have such a poor reputation. And it's great to hear that that has improved. Um, and I think it's through education. You're, you're looking at mainstream media now, front page headlines talking about phase three trials and people really getting to grips with what it takes to get a drug from from lab bench all the way to the market and the risks that companies have to take in order to do so. You know, huge investment in, in R&D and a very, very slim chance of actually getting to approval and treating patients. And, and the, you know, the upside is that they have repricing and for a certain number of 10, say, years for patent life, after which it will become generic and society will gain this new therapy for much, much cheaper price. So that's the deal that with society that the industry has. And it seems like a fair one and, and uh, a robust one. That's an interesting point you make about how difficult it is for these companies. So as an investor, um, it's a very specialist area. What where traditional metrics like profits and cash flow probably aren't much use. How do you assess the investment case for companies and decide what to invest in? Yeah, I, and this is a, another sort of uh, misconception of biotech, I think, within UK, uh, the UK investment community. And that's that biotech companies are all unprofitable in an early stage. And that's absolutely true. But only really a, a part a, sec- a section of the industry not the whole industry so predominantly the biotech market resides in in America and we can talk about why that is um, another time or later on um, but what we're seeing is that these companies have been around for 10 20 years and they've morphed into profitable companies and actually some of these companies like you mentioned Gilead are looking very much like a traditional pharma company in lots of respects so as an investor, and we manage a fund, we've got a proportion, it's approximately a third, a third, a third at the moment. So a third of our portfolios invested in profitable biotech companies. A third are invested in what we call revenue growth names. So this is where the company has, has successfully um, launched a drug. So it's been proved efficacious and safe. They've launched a drug, but we haven't turned a profit. Uh, and so that's called revenue growth. And then the the final third is what we call development stage biotech companies. So this is where the traditional sense of biotech is, you know, still in clinical trials, still has to be proven, still relatively high risk on on lots of levels. Um, And so to value those different pots, you have to use different metrics. And for the profitable names, you would use the traditional metrics that you've just mentioned. For the revenue growth names, uh, again, more traditional means of valuing or you can you know for us we look at uh, price to peak sales ratio for example on the revenue growth names and then on the unprofitable names we look at dcfs and again future price to peak sales as a way and a means of trying to really get to the bottom of the fundamental value of each company yeah and across those across those three sections um where are you seeing the best value currently the best value has, has that shifted over the past year? Yeah, and this, this is one of the fascinating things about biotech is that you do tend to see an overshooting and an, um, on both directions, both in optimism and pessimism um, within individual companies and the sector overall. So you, you'll remember back in 2000, we saw a huge interest in, in tech and biotech was caught up in that. Um, and we had the dot-com bubble and then the market the biotech went out of favor for a fair amount of time for years and then again 
there was a huge boom in biotech into 2015 period um, and then the sector went quiet again uh, and so it's a sort of it goes in and out of favor as a sector and then stocks as well the same thing's true there so we're seeing a lot of hype and a lot of frothy valuations around so-called thematic early exciting sexy stories CRISPR technologies for example uh, where lots and lots and lots of um, retail ETF money has flown into to those sorts of names and we're seeing huge valuations and then conversely on these revenue growth names they, they're, they've been rel relatively neglected so valuations have come down quite a bit on those companies on a relative basis so we like that area so we're, we're, we're investing in that space right now because we think there's a, a real disconnect at the moment. Can you give Give us some examples of what you've been what you've been buying recently. Yeah, so um, I can talk about our top ten, which we announce every month on our fact sheet. Um, we've been adding to Horizon Therapeutics, which is uh, used to be a specialty pharma company, but it's uh, acquired in some orphan disease assets. Really smart decisions and bought some in some assets with um, great growth prospects. One of those drugs, Tepeza, is launched. And the sales have just been smashing the lights out every quarter. Um, so we've been adding to that name. Uh, we've been adding to it because obviously sales growth is a huge driver of, of um, share price returns, but also because it's got an excellent, strong management team. And they've managed to do this amazing launch despite um, the COVID pandemic. So uh, we like that name. Um, we've been adding to that name. Um, we've been adding to... Uh, names that are sort of out of favour names, the CNS, central nervous system names tend to are being slightly out of favour at the moment. Um, so we've been adding to those sorts of names. And then on the sales side, we, um, and we might not come to this later, but um, we tend, we try and trade in and out of our investments if we're approaching a so-called binary event. So um, we try and uh, lower the risk um, by trading out of a company if it's heading into an approval date, for example. So we've, you can see from our fact sheets, we've been reducing our position in um, a company called Acadia uh, going into their Purdue for date, which um, actually turned out to be a negative outcome. So uh, we were fortunate in that situation. Um, so those are the sorts of moves we've been doing lately. Interesting. Is that something you do every time or do you ever think that, you know, launch could go really well and hold on to it? Um, well, I think we basically every single situation is nuanced and unique and Marek and I um, discuss each one as it is about to happen. It's a big part of our day job, this monitoring news flow. It's a lot of work um, and it's kind of key to our investment process as well. Um, but yeah, basically the idea is that of those events that you can predict, so you have to know when it's going to happen. If you don't know and you get something happens out of the blue and hits you left field, it's an unpredictable timing, then it's very difficult to avoid those sorts of events. But Purdue for dates are generally predictable um, uh, and, and clinical trial readouts, you can, you can uh, more often than not know when roughly that will be in terms of which, which quarter or half year you're expecting that readout to be. And so we will, yes, we will reduce our exposure going into that event. And then if we like the outcome, if the drug works, for example, and it's safe, we will then invest back into that name. Okay, interesting. So that must be a large part of the reason why your portfolio turnover is so high. Yes, that and M&A as well. We've had four, four deals in the first half of our financial year, M&A deals. Um, and obviously okay. that throws in a huge, of, 
huge amount of cash invest. Um, so Gilead buying immunomedics, we've now got to find a home for the immunomedics cash. So yeah, that big turnover as well. But you're absolutely right, binary events will, uh, the, the management around binary events is going to increase the turnover. Is M&A ever a disappointment? You know, do, you, do they ever have bids that you that you think are too too low? Or is it always a good thing? I think, I mean, if it's if it's returning for our shareholders, I don't think we can complain. Um, certainly, you do hear of um, debates around valuations, uh, but there are arguments both sides because every single story you can you can argue the valuation of the pipeline should be higher. For example, what we're seeing lately is two different drivers of of um, of motivation, if you like, um, regarding M and A. So on the one side, we're seeing financial deals, and this is where the fundamentals of the company maybe aren't as strong, but if you did DCF calculation on their uh, sales, it's clearly looking cheap. And so some examples of that would be Shire and Celgene. Um, the comp- that would have been a financial deal. It made sense to the acquirer to acquire that company. And then on the other sort of flip side of that, technology-driven deals. And this is where you've got a really hot area, new, absolutely fascinating, exciting prospects company. So Kite Therapeutics, which was a cell therapy, Juno, also a cell therapy company. So these um, platform technologies, which are acquired by big big biotech and big pharma um, uh, and technology driven, tend to uh, ask for, well, command huge premiums. So um, depending on what the sort of deal is, then that sort of dictates the 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 kind of um valuations of those deals and whether we're happy or not happy i think if it returns if the returns are decent and on average m a you see a 50 percent um premium on m a deals i think we're, we're pretty happy with that yeah do you invest in any of these um health tech companies that aren't necessarily biotech companies but it seems to be quite an exciting area do you do you have anything that's not specifically biotech we we focus pretty much predominantly on therapeutics within SV Health Investors. So SV is made up of 50 medically um, trained or industry experienced um, uh, management teams. And so um, because of that, we harness our sort of strengths and therefore we focus on the therapeutic side of the industry. And rare diseases is a sizable chunk um, at 30%, according to your fact sheet. What part of why do you like this part of the market and, and what are the most exciting developments in this area? Sure. So we um, we don't kind of look at our investment universe and think, right, we're going to put X percentage of the portfolio of disease. What we do is we look for characteristics and fundamentals in a company that we like, and it sort of falls out that we have that much in rare disease, if that makes sense. So the characteristics of rare disease companies are appealing because um, rare diseases are uh, where there's a patient population that's relatively small. And as a result of that, the clinical trials themselves are quite small, which obviously means it's much cheaper to run. Um, As a way of incentivizing people to look into rare diseases, uh, they can charge basically a much higher price than more conventional disease areas. So it's high pricing. Um, the disease tends to be well understood. It tends to be genetically based. 
um, and therefore the science behind it is well understood as well. Uh, so you've got a kind of combination of all these factors which make for a sound, in our view, investment prospect. And so because of that, there are many companies from small cap all the way up to large cap, like Vertex is a rare disease company uh, that have these um, attributes that we like. And that's why we have a decent chunk of the portfolio there. And, and also longer term, this portion of the market, the rare disease sales um, prospects look stronger than the overall drug sales growth. So for that reason as well, we like to invest in this area. Yeah, that makes sense. And oncology is the other, the other large um, subsector waiting that you've got. What, what are the most sort of exciting developments happening in this field, and and what are the companies involved? Yeah, again, fascinating area. Really, really cutting edge science. Um, and the, the whole landscape of treating oncology has changed dramatically in the last two decades, three decades. Um, it, it, just to reiterate. The, the attributes, the characteristics of oncology companies are, tick, are box ticking for us. So they're treating an unmet medical need. Again, yep, oncology does that. Pricing power, yep. Um, uh, um, what we're seeing is basically over the, as I just mentioned, over the two, say, decades, we've moved from treating patients with chemotherapy, which basically just kills all dividing cells to these new approaches, very, very differently, um, different approaches. So you can have cell therapy where uh, a patient's um, T cells or immune cells are taken out of their body and then manipulated so that they can recognize and destroy their own cancer cells. And then they're re-injected back into the patient, um, which has been incredibly effective. And then you've got targeted oncology therapies where um, you give, uh, say for example, a, a, an oral tablet and the, uh, the TKI, we call them tyrosine kinase inhibitors, can uh, target specifically a, a cancer cell rather than um, any old dividing cell, which you'd have seen with chemotherapy. So a much less sort of toxic and more efficacious approach to, um, to the disease. And so this is really, and, and, and the battle is far from over. So um, it's an ongoing thing. Uh, we love this area um, and it's great to see uh, the improvements for patients as well over the period of time, such a short period of time, not only just on efficacy, but but a much higher quality of life because the drugs just aren't as toxic as they used to be, maybe. It's fascinating. It's amazing what developments are happening. Now, you're about to become the co-lead manager of the fund. Carl yeah. Harold Janssen's stepping down. Can you talk us through any changes that you plan to make to the investment approach? Sure. So Marek and I are really excited about this. Um, we can't wait to, to uh, carry on the fund after Carl Howard's time. Um, Carl Howard was great. He taught us a lot. We're not going to change anything dramatically. We're very wedded to the idea of, for example, the risk mitigation on the around binary events, absolutely looking for these characteristics that I've mentioned, strong management teams, unmet medical need, pricing power, etc., um, so no major changes. We might see turnover come down a bit uh, relative to the size of the fund, but still very much the same strategy. So watch this space. And um, most of the unquoted portion of the fund is in SV Life Sciences Fund. Um, yeah, SV Fund 6, yeah. And that's that's managed separately. How has this performance compared with the rest of the fund? And do you have any say in the management of 
um, SV Fund 6? Yeah, so um, historically it's performed really well and it's um, it's it's obviously a high risk, high return part of the portfolio, so you'd expect it to outperform the broader biotech market, which it has. Um, and then it, actually at the end of this month, we will report our interim report. And within that, you can um, see the latest performance number for, for the uncreated part of the portfolio. Um, so uh, that's been positive. And then in terms of management, that we have an investment committee and Marek and I will sit on the public side on that investment committee alongside the SV um, uh, partners. So Kate Bingham, for example, who is responsible for that part of the portfolio. And so we have that investment committee regarding any decisions on, on SV Fund 6. Yeah. And just a couple of um, more geopolitical questions. The funds heavily weighted towards the US. Um, has the Biden administration changed the prospects for biotechnology companies now they have control of Congress? Yes, and, and you say control. It, they do have control. They actually lost seats in the House of Representatives, surprisingly, the Democrats, that is. They obviously have the presidency, um, but they're neck and neck in the Senate. So in order to get major legislative change through, you, you need to see a, a stronger majority than that. That's not to say that things won't change, for the but major changes probably off the table, but we'll see. Um, Biden is more of a centrist Dem. Uh, he, um, he succeeded Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders at, at trying to lead the Dems into the election, um, whereas Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were from the left, more progressive side of the Democrats, they would have gone for something called Medicare for all. Biden's sticking with Obamacare. He was part of the administration when Obamacare was introduced. He's very much wedded to that. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we're not completely relaxed by it, but certainly we're, we're much less fearful than we were, say, a year ago. Uh, this healthcare in, in the US is constantly used as a political football. Um, you're constantly hearing about it in, in on the headlines and certainly election years it tends to be a bit choppier but now the election's behind us and things have settled down and we've got this very very tight lead for the Dems versus the Republicans we're, we're less concerned. And um, what's your view on the biotech industry here in the UK because we've got some great small companies and great universities, but I get the impression that they tend to get bought by foreign companies. What, what's your outlook in the UK? Yeah, and I think you're right. I think, but not just acquired, they get acquired, yes, um, but they also go and list in the US. Uh, so that's where the money is, and that's the reality. Um, if Kate was here, she would say, well, on the venture side, the UK is absolutely um, thriving and doing really well on, on bio, in biotech. But what they do after their uh, initial series ABC on the venture side is, is that they do often want to go and list in NASDAQ. So um, you're seeing this on the public side, this very, very heavily weighted over in the US, but that's not necessarily the case on the venture side, on the private side. You don't have much exposure to Asia, um, but it sounds like there are exciting things happening there. What's your, what's your view on the Asian biotech space, in China yeah. in particular? So we don't have um, China listed uh, investments, but we do have exposure. So like I was just mentioning, UK companies go to the US to list, so do Chinese companies. So we've got, um, there are a, a handful of names within our, our benchmark. 
that we look at. We do have a few names in the fund that we've invested in that has it, that are Chinese companies but listed in the US. And we like that because then they're um, subject to the rigorous rules of, of US listing. Um, and we feel that they're much more transparent in terms of management teams and the capital structure. So we do have exposure to China, not just through these companies, but also many of our companies have um, distribution of their um, sales in, in Asia as well. So, but you're right, we don't have listed Chinese companies within the fund at the moment. Um, we're constantly looking at it. We take this into account and we, we take into account their valuations, et cetera. Um, and we, we can absolutely invest them if we think that the time is right and it's an interesting investment. And um, I've just got a few more mechanical questions. The trust has a 4% dividend level based on net asset value calculated every August. How is the um, dividend raised? Presumably yeah, so it's not it's all through. Yeah. Um, okay. And it's, so, in, no, nothing, barely, I mean, biotech companies very rarely have um, natural dividends and income. So um, Gilead has a de minimis one, for example. So the majority of our dividend, um, our dividend, if not all, comes from the capital, and therefore, um, uh, if our, and it's pegged to NAV. So every year we pay out four percent of NAV as a dividend in two instalments of two percent, two percent. And if the NAV goes up, then the dividend will go up. But if the NAV falls, then the dividend will fall. Um, so that's how the dividend works. There are positives and negatives for that. On on you know one side. It could be seen as a way of diversifying dividends because we're not relying on income. And a lot of uh, companies, if they come through difficult times during the pandemic, et cetera, might struggle to pay their dividend. So there's that side of things. Equally, like I said, if, if the market turns and NAV falls, then the dividend level will fall. And, and if the market did turn, you would continue to pay the dividend? The board have said that there have been no major changes to the dividend policies. Okay. And what's the trust's current gearing position? Currently, it's it's pretty small. We have a facility. This is one of the advantages of closed-ended funds versus open-ended is that we can gear. Um, so, and over the long term, that's great. So we actively manage our gearing position. And it's approximately, it, it, it kind of wobbles between 0 and 10%, the gearing position. And right now, at the last fact sheet, it was a 2% geared position. Great. Well, I'm afraid we're out of time now, but that was really interesting. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 